This is the way the world ends. This is the dramatic, though not entirely untrue, assessment of Tom Blanton, the director of the National Security Archive at George Washington University, in the foreword to the authoritative work on the Abel Archer nuclear war scare of 1983. So, how does the world end? Easily. Too easily, it turns out. Here's the scenario. A change in Soviet leadership ushered in a new regime, intent on reversing Western gains by asserting power in the Persian Gulf. By March of 1983, the US and the USSR were locked in proxy wars in Iran, Syria, and South Yemen. By June, the Soviet influence over its Eastern European satellites was weakening. Internal discord was amplified by a worsening economic situation. The Soviet Union made a massive push to regain authority, but reduced aid and growing resistance to Soviet domination in the public sphere continued to erode Moscow's position. In opposition to it, the Warsaw Pact forces continued to increase military readiness and stockpile enormous amounts of materiel. In August, Yugoslavia shifted toward NATO, requesting economic and military assistance. Fearing that this could encourage its satellites to defect to the West, the Soviet Union invaded Yugoslavia, followed by Finland and Norway at the end of October. November 4th, the Soviets cross the Fulda Gap and go head-to-head -head with NATO forces. November 6th, chemical weapons are used to break the stalemate. November 8th, commanders request permission for a limited nuclear strike on an Eastern European city on the following day. November 10th, Soviets bomb UK airfields to disrupt B-52 operations. November 11th, another NATO nuclear strike. November 12th, global thermonuclear warfare. And this is the way the world ends. This is, at least, the way that Exercise Able Archer 83, a war game to simulate the release of nuclear weapons in wartime conditions, outlined the end of the world for its players. The thing is, as Moscow watched the game play out, some elements in the leadership had become convinced that it was anything but a game. It was a thinly disguised move toward a first strike, a nuclear blitzkrieg, and the only way to survive would be to strike the enemy first. But before we get to the near disaster of 1983, the culmination of the now famous war scare, which involves more than just Abel Archer 83, I should say, we need to understand what brought the superpowers to the point of mistrust, suspicion, and even paranoia, perhaps not seen since the days of Joseph Stalin. The situation in those years had become so obviously dire, so dangerous, so unsustainable, 
that with the bare minimum of hindsight, Mikhail Gorbachev said in 1986, quote, Never, perhaps in the post-war decades, was the situation in the world as explosive and hence more difficult and unfavorable as in the first half of the 1980s. The quick succession of disastrous events in those short years, culminating in 1983, so repeatedly threatened a third world war that it changed the psychological landscape of the Cold War. It was a time when year after year, choices, some military, some political, some technological, and miscalculations and mistakes seemed to be compounded relentlessly, building to a point at which war between NATO and the Warsaw Pact was probably a stunningly real possibility. Not once, but multiple times. And never in a way so obviously acute as at the end of 1983. So, what brought the superpowers to that state? After the admittedly uneasy coexistence of the 20 years since the Cuban Missile Crisis, Let's take a look at the landscape. You can watch 110-minute YouTube videos on Able Archer, but come into the vault, and you can understand why it was so scary. 1983, Part 1, The War Scare. This time on the Cold War Vault. of detente. Where to begin? Well, if this series is about the last worst time, we should start with the last, or second to last, best time. The decade of easier coexistence between the superpowers, known as the era of detente. Détente is a tricky subject because it exists almost entirely in the mind and in hindsight. Not to say that it didn't have real implications and real moments of progress, but it was a blanket term for an easing of the Cold War pressures between the United States and the Soviet Union between the late 1960s and the late 1970s. Détente is also a topic that has been, and will continue to be the subject of academic books and scholarly philosophies. But for our purposes, we can look at a bare-bones timeline. In the first decade of the Cold War, things were difficult, geopolitically. Conflicts over Berlin and Stalin's general feeling that the United States was advocating for a preemptive nuclear strike set the tone. China, losing to Mao's communists in 1949, then the Korean War, and continued technical advances in nuclear warfighting capabilities made the 1950s a time of stress, to say the least. 
The Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 was a moment of realization for both the Soviet Union and the United States. It was truly the first look over the brink, into the abyss. It jarred the two sides into some early attempts at an easing of tensions. The 1963 Limited Test Ban Treaty is what we'll call a move in the direction of proto-détente. Further easing was delayed by the U.S. escalation in Vietnam, but a couple of things happened on both sides that opened the door to talks again. First, Vietnam had become a burden on the U.S. administration, politically, militarily, and financially. For the Soviet Union, the ongoing drama of the stages of the Sino-Soviet split meant that it might pay to have better relations with the U.S. Now that it was clear that the Chinese wouldn't be offering assistance to the Soviet Union anytime soon. In 1968, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty was signed. In 1972, the first round of SALT, the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks, produced the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, ABM. By 1975, diplomatic efforts had produced the Helsinki Final Act, which recognized political borders, established military confidence-building measures, promoted human rights, and created opportunities for trade and cultural exchange. Perhaps the most visible symbol of this aspect of detente was the 1975 Apollo-Soyuz handshake in space, in which U.S. and Soviet spacecraft docked in orbit and the astronauts, well, shook hands. But of course, the good times were not to last. CIA analyst and writer Benjamin Fisher said of the brief, decade-long thaw in relations, a modern-day Rip Van Winkle waking up in 1983 would have noted little, if any, improvement in the international political climate. He would not have realized that a substantial period of detente had come and gone while he slept. History had come full circle, it seemed, but what happened to disassemble the progress that had been made? Well, I suppose first, the goals of detente were never clearly articulated beyond an easing of tensions, which, given how bad things had gotten in previous decades, seemed a lofty enough goal. But once it had been accomplished, the smaller, nagging issues came into even higher resolution. The smoldering proxy wars in Southeast Asia and Latin America, chief amongst them. In the Soviet Union, Brezhnev's failing health and chronic indecision left that government entirely incapable of maintaining a coherent foreign policy that could continue to reap benefits from detente. But one particular geopolitical event seems to have put the stake through the heart of better relations. Having perhaps learned nothing from the American experience in Vietnam, the Soviet Union intervened, for its own calculated reasons, in Afghanistan. Two, Afghanistan.
The Soviet presence in Afghanistan remains a complex historical issue with implications that echo to the present day. It is the stuff of its own episode, or series of episodes to be sure, but in the quickest way possible. In 1978, a military coup led by the Communist Party in Afghanistan took power. Most people, the very rich urbanites and the very poor villagers, hated the idea. And anti-government, anti-communist armed groups initiated an insurgency. Whole swaths of the country were in open rebellion. In September 1979, the general secretary who had seized power in the coup was himself assassinated by his second-in-command, Hafizullah Amin, who then became the new general secretary. The Soviet Union had enough of the shenanigans and staged an intervention, in which Brezhnev sat down with Amin and the rest of the family and told him how he needed treatment. No. Actually, Brezhnev deployed the 40th Army on Christmas Eve 1979, invaded Afghanistan, sought out and killed Amin, and installed a new Soviet loyalist as general secretary. This began nine years of very difficult fighting. The Soviets' own Vietnam quagmire, resulting in much the same way. The withdrawal of the Soviet Union having accomplished nothing. But of course, that's a story for another day. But what is important for the story at hand is that for all of the highs and lows of détente, all of the disagreements domestically in the United States and internationally, the invasion of Afghanistan marked the official and very public end of a decade of slightly better relations with the Soviet Union and a slightly lessened chance of nuclear armed conflict. The reaction to the invasion was immediate. On January 2, 1980, U.S. President Jimmy Carter requested that progress on the SALT II nuclear weapons treaty be halted, which it was. Then Carter recalled the U.S. Ambassador Thomas Watson just to drive the point home. Perhaps the most visible, though least impactful, action the U.S. took in response to the invasion was the boycott of the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. It was the most boycotted Olympic Games ever, with 66 countries withdrawing or not participating for a variety of reasons, mostly the U.S.-led Afghanistan invasion boycott. And so, with the invasion of Afghanistan, détente came to an end. 3. Ronald Wilson Reagan In reality, the response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was also an opportunity to give voice to a trend in American politics, Western politics more generally, that was marked by disillusionment with détente and the endless rounds of arms control talks that did effectively nothing. 
To paraphrase Carl Sagan's famous metaphor, something I've mentioned on the vault before, the perception of the arms control deals was to agree on a hundred matches instead of a hundred and twenty between two men in a room knee-deep in gasoline. And it was Ronald Reagan who gave voice to that growing sentiment. It was part of the Reagan package, even from the midst of detente, when he lost the Republican nomination to Gerald Ford in the 1976 campaign, his concession speech focused on the Soviet threat and the looming danger of nuclear war. He doubled down on his rhetoric when he won the presidency, taking office in January 1981. A brief note. Many still think of Reagan as the hawk that blew up defense spending and rattled the sabers to the brink but contrary to continued public perception, it was the Carter administration that first attempted to close the perceived gaps that had opened with the Soviet Union during the years of detente. The Carter administration reinvigorated the CIA's program of covert action against the Soviet Union and began the military buildup that would continue under Reagan. In any case, the historical reversal was abrupt. While the Soviets were mired in Afghanistan, they were also losing to insurgents in Angola, their foothold in Africa, and pouring good money after bad into an economically failing Cuba, which was their foothold in the Americas. They were also struggling against US-backed opposition to the Marxist government in Nicaragua, which was their next best hope for a position in the Americas. While all of this was happening, U.S. popular opinion was turning against detente, and the intensely anti-Soviet message of the new U.S. president resonated with a majority of the American people. Add to that the planned and eventual deployment of the intermediate-range Pershing II nuclear missiles and the new Strategic Defense Initiative, which we will discuss in the next episode, and the Soviet Union was suddenly in a position of perceived and possibly very real vulnerability. And so this, in a nutshell, was what brought the superpowers to the end of detente and into the last, darkest, downward spiral of danger in the Cold War. What some commentators at the time called Cold War II. Four, Cold War II and the War Scare. In the years that have come and gone since, declassifications and reevaluations have made the realities and potential implications of Cold War II a much more complex subject. At the time, the ever-present foreign policy thinker George Kennan said that the end of detente and sudden explosion of tensions had the, quote, familiar characteristics, the unfailing characteristics of a march toward war. Much later, in 2007, the CIA analyst Benjamin Fisher, who I quoted earlier, found that assessment to be exaggerated and pointed out that nowhere in the world were the superpowers in a head-to-head -head confrontation that was likely to escalate to war. 
This, of course, seems to neglect the obvious features of the 1983 war scare that will be the subject of the next episodes in this series. Technological accident and paranoid misinterpretation in a nuclear geopolitical standoff that did not leave room for second chances in the event of miscalculation. But in those first Reagan years, the entire upswell of old Cold War sentiments did take on the character of a war of words, rather than a war of missiles. On the U.S. side of the Atlantic, probably the most famous of these words would be Reagan's declaration that the Soviet Union was the focus of evil in the world, and as such was an evil empire. On the Soviet side, Yuri Andropov called Reagan an insane liar. After this, the rhetoric went white hot. The Soviets compared Reagan to Hitler, referencing his perceived desire to launch a preemptive strike on the motherland. The reference to Hitler is lost sometimes these days, given Mike Godwin's law of Nazi analogies, in which we are all subject to Hitler references and accusations in any sufficiently long YouTube or Facebook comment thread. But the Soviets really meant it, because they had war on the brain. A serious fear of the recurrent historical tendency of nations to launch surprise invasions of Russia. But in particular, in the first years of the 1980s, the Soviet leadership became convinced that Reagan, at the head of the imperialist aggressors, was planning to preemptively attack the Soviet Union using the strategic nuclear force. This multi-year war scare had two distinct phases. The first was in 1981 and remained mostly concealed, confined to the upper echelons of the Soviet leadership, and the second in 1983 that became more significant, wide-ranging, more broadly known, and highly dangerous. In 1981, the KGB used a relatively new computer analysis technique to create the authoritative report on how the Cold War was going for them. Turns out, it wasn't going well. In effect, it showed that the USSR was losing and the US was winning on the global stage. It showed that there was a geopolitical imbalance in what the Soviets called the correlation of forces. I want to take a moment to break this down. Not really an aside, but a kind of rabbit hole that is important in understanding why the Soviet Union became so scared of the U.S. in these years. And also why U.S. intelligence analysts and military planners continually misconstrued Soviet intentions and misunderstood Soviet thinking. The correlation of forces is an idea that the West never fully understood. In fact, the West continues to misunderstand Russian intentions due to this, at the West's peril, I might add. The correlation of forces is not balance of power. 
That's the first most fundamental misunderstanding. While a balance of power can be achieved by policy, more ships, more missiles, more spending, the Soviet idea of correlation of forces is a balance that's determined by social and historical processes, which you will recognize from Marxism 101. Policies don't shape the correlation of forces. The forces shape the policy. I know this seems like we've gone well into the weeds, but it really does help to explain why the United States intelligence community couldn't understand the irrational actions of the Soviets. It's because the philosophical nature of the correlation of forces was barely understood, and the Soviets were acting rationally, but by an entirely different set of rules. Let's get back to the core of the story. But remember this when I try not to use the word paranoid in reference to the Great War Scare, particularly in 1983. The Soviet leadership was only paranoid in hindsight from a Western perspective. From their point of view, the attack was coming, and history and political philosophy gave perfect reasons for it. This sudden imbalance in the correlation of forces was a shock to the system of the Soviet leadership. Ten years before, the primacy of the Soviet world position was not questioned. Andrei Gromyko, as foreign minister, said confidently, today there is no question of any significance that can be decided without the Soviet Union or in opposition to it. Not untrue. But by the Soviet's own assessment, the geopolitical landscape had changed. While that computerized intelligence assessment by the KGB in 1981 gave a somewhat cautious, long-range description of Cold War trends, the Politburo took it as a clear and present and panic-inducingly immediate danger. And they took action. If the war was coming, they needed to know when, where, and how. Five. Operation Ryan. Leonid Brezhnev, head of the Soviet Union, and Yuri Andropov, the head of the KGB in 1981, issued new instructions in heated speeches to KGB officers. Brezhnev spoke on his personal concern about the Reagan rhetoric and that it might be more than words. Then Andropov just blatantly stated as a matter of fact what many already feared, that the United States was making preparations for a surprise nuclear attack on the Soviet Union. The solution was a joint effort between the KGB and military intelligence, the GRU, to create a new and massive intelligence-gathering effort codenamed Ryan. Hiding absolutely nothing, Ryan was an acronym for Nuclear Missile Attack. The program began in November 1981 
and, according to the very sparse declassified Soviet documents, continued into 1989. The collection of information took any and all available forms and prioritized three categories of intelligence, political and strategic decisions on the part of NATO, early warning of U.S. and NATO preparations for a surprise attack, and any new weapons systems that might be used in a surprise attack. The problems inherent in the Ryan program will become clear in a moment, and in greater detail. But in the simplest terms, the Politburo now had at its disposal what it considered to be the final word on U.S. and NATO preparations for a surprise nuclear attack. The constant stream of information from Ryan intelligence gathering around the world made its way into the Kremlin's daily briefing books. And so, if the Ryan analysis showed definitively, or even convincingly, that a surprise attack was coming, what possible choice would the Soviet leadership have? What choice but to strike first? Operation Ryan wasn't just a product of growing tensions. It was a major piece of a clockwork war. A lesson of the First World War, the guns of August, never fully absorbed by either of the superpowers. If A, then B, then Z. Where A is a faulty assessment in a secret report to the Politburo one morning, B is the intransigent war plan, and Z is the planet of the apes. But even with that danger, the Ryan program proceeded. And in the eyes of the Soviets, it proceeded as a way of dealing with a very real and looming threat. Anatoly Dobrynin, the longtime Soviet ambassador to the United States, reminds us in his memoir that Andropov was the first top Soviet leader since Stalin, who seemed to believe that the United States might launch a surprise attack on the Soviet Union. What was Operation Ryan really a reaction to? Why, after decades, had the Soviets become convinced that the United States was preparing to strike first? It's important to mention two things here. First, the United States never, ever, ever entertained a policy of first use or prepared for a sneak attack. Second, the Soviets didn't know that. So what did the U.S. do to scare the Soviets? There's enough blame for the war scare to go around. In Benjamin Fisher's analysis that I've cited before, one of the major motivating factors was a series of U.S. psychological operations, or PSYOPs, undertaken early in the Reagan presidency. The PSYOPs consisted of air and naval probes at the Soviet borders designed to look for gaps and vulnerabilities in the early warning systems, but also just to keep them guessing. In Peter Schweitzer's 1994 book, Victory on Reagan and the Fall of the Soviet Union, a former Strategic Air Command commander describes the probes. He said, Sometimes we would send bombers over the North Pole, and their radars would click on. 
Other times, fighter bombers would probe their Asian or European periphery. During peak times, the operation would include several maneuvers in a week. They would come at irregular intervals to make the effect all the more unsettling. Then, as quickly as the unannounced flights began, they would stop, only to begin again a few weeks later. The former Undersecretary of State for Military Assistance and Technology recalled, it really got to them. They didn't know what it all meant. A squadron would fly straight at Soviet airspace, and they would go on alert. Then at the last minute, the squadron would peel off and return home. The Navy played a role in this psychological manipulation as well, and a significant one. In March 1981, Reagan authorized a new set of exercises that took aircraft carrier battle groups closer to the Soviet Union than ever before. And, more anxiety-inducing, the warships were often undetected. In August and September 1981, a multinational armada with U.S., British, Canadian, and Norwegian ships, all led by the carrier Eisenhower, transited the Greenland-Iceland-United Kingdom gap completely undetected by the Soviet Union. I'll put an image in the show notes, but the gap is a geographical feature that creates a relatively narrow passage that any Soviet ship has to pass through to operate in the Atlantic. Unless it's already in the Pacific, of course. The fleet used passive and active measures to evade detection, and even managed to evade a Soviet satellite launched with the express purpose of locating it. The 83 warships entered waters disturbingly close to the Soviet Union's territorial waters and then launched fighters to simulate attacks on Soviet planes as they refueled in flight. The fighters flew low over the water and also evaded any Soviet early warning radar systems. I cannot imagine the indignation and fevered anxiety if a Chinese carrier group did the same 12 miles off the coast of San Diego. But hey, 2020 isn't over yet. After the exercises, what was clear to the U.S. and, more painfully, to the Soviet Union was that a naval force could elude the entirety of the Soviet maritime surveillance infrastructure. It could defeat all of the Soviet tactical warning systems and could penetrate Soviet air defense systems with near impunity. Pieces were falling into place to make the war scare of 1981 to 1983, and especially the public phase of the war scare in 1983, the most tenuous, dangerous time of the entire Cold War, except perhaps the Cuban Missile Crisis, though the more we know about what happened in 1983, even that comparison becomes increasingly asymmetrical. But for everything that has happened in our story so far, in 1981 and 1982, things hadn't really even gotten scary yet. But next time on the Cold War Vault, we'll get to 1983, a great candidate for the year the world ends. 
thank you for listening to The Vault. Remember, you can support The Vault on Patreon and get access to the declassified documents used in researching the show, and more. This series came from a listener suggestion, and Patreon is the best way to get your ideas to me. The best way to see what's new is to follow on Facebook at Cold War Vault. So, the next time you see a comment on YouTube from someone lamenting the loss of Eddie Van Halen and pining for a decade, alas, he never knew, being born in 2002, remember that while Van Halen was recording the album 1984, there was a nuclear war in the works. And we will get to that next time.